0: The way that I've approached negotiation, I've approached it more in the direction of sharing where I want to be and where I'd like to be. And this is where I am now. If you can help me understand, how do I go from where I am now to where I am there? And if you can walk out of that conversation with some actionable next steps, then you have a plan. It also forces a person on the other side of the table to think about what is my answer going to be to this ask.
1: I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than 9 to 5. All right, let's get into it. Hi everyone, it's Danielle. Nine to five-ish is going on holiday break and we'll be back in your feed in January. Happy holidays and we hope you enjoy this episode. Today, our guest is Samina Verk. Samina is the CEO of North America for Vestiaire Collective, the Goldman Sachs and SoftBank backed luxury fashion resale site. Resale fashion is a rapidly growing industry which I am very acquainted with, and according to some estimates, is expected to grow 11 times faster than the broader clothing sector by 2025. Samina had previously worked at Vestier as the company's U.S. president and also spent time working for companies such as Target, eBay, and Thread Styling, where she served as chief marketing officer. Samina, welcome to to 9to5ish.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you for being here. So before we get into it, we like to do a little warm-up, quick questions, quick answers, lightning round. You ready? Great. Let's do it. I'm ready.
0: Okay. First
1: job you got paid for?
0: I worked for my father, helping to compile and proofread real estate appraisals, which is what he was doing in his retirement.
1: That's what he did in his retirement?
0: Yes, that was his hobby.
1: (laughs) Wow. What languages do you speak?
0: So I grew up speaking Punjabi and some Urdu, and I can understand Hindi. So they're all sort of from the same family. And my parents are Pakistani, so I'm first-generation Pakistani.
1: What is your go-to karaoke song?
0: Oh, I don't know if I have one, but if I had to pick one right now, for some reason, I will survive just popped in my head.
1: (laughs) (laughs) To usher in the holidays. I I
0: like that. I know. I think it's, it's getting ready for Black Friday. Maybe that's what's happening.
1: What is one product you cannot live without?
0: I can't live without my lip gloss. I hate my dry lips, so I'm always putting on my lip gloss. Like... Chapstick or a gloss? It's a gloss. It's MAC lip gloss, and I go through it like candy. I carry it everywhere, and then I collect all the bottles and take it back into their recycling program. What is
1: the last show you binge watched? I binged the first four episodes of The Crown this past weekend. I'm so excited that I still have that to look forward to. One person you want to have at a dinner party, living or dead. I feel like it would be so interesting to have the Obamas. It's a popular answer on this podcast, I I will say. Okay, so let's get into it. My favorite question to ask is, like, how did you become you? What's your family like? I always think it's so interesting when I meet successful people in all different areas is, like, how did they grow up? That is a really interesting question
0: that I don't think many people ask me. So I love that you asked it. I grew up first-generation Pakistani. So my parents moved to the U.S., to Michigan, one year before I was born. And I grew up as the only girl. I had three brothers. My dad was super excited about computers and technology. And my brothers ended up going into the tech world. And I grew up, you know, a little bit of maybe a typical first-generation teenager who felt confused about which culture I'm in. I wasn't necessarily all American, and I definitely wasn't very Pakistani. So I sort of grew up between these two worlds. And I actually think that that is what shaped kind of who I became as a professional, even the career choices that I made, and even how I am as a leader, and even working for an international company right now. I learned very well at a young age how to negotiate between cultures.
1: I want to talk about your early years in fashion and marketing. How did you know that this was something you were interested in?
0: I think my first interest in fashion was when I was young. My mother taught me how to sew. And I took that sort of first generation cultural confusion and made clothes. You know, I would make clothes, I would gift it, I would try to sell them. And I ma- kind of made these clothes that were between East and West cultures. So I was trying to represent myself through fashion think that lit the fashion spark, for sure, from high school. And since then, I was always fascinated with the industry. When I graduated from college, though, I realized I wasn't necessarily best for the creative side of fashion. It was a good attempt, but maybe not where my strongest skills were. So I actually started my career in the e-commerce world. And e-commerce during the internet bubble craziness was actually a very interesting industry because it was this mix of technical, graphic design, copyright, all of these different teams working together to sort of build these e-commerce experiences. So I found it to be still a creative industry, but riding the technology wave. After about seven, eight years, I went to get my MBA. And it was post-MBA that I graduated and I thought, now's the time. I've had this love of the fashion industry. I've gotten to know the technology industry. I now want the two worlds to collide. And so I first joined Target in their MBA merchandising program and then moved into their marketing team to lead designer collaborations to get sort of that retail and industry experience. And then after that is when I sort of moved into the world of fashion and technology and marketplaces.
1: I read when you started out that you didn't really have female mentors as you were building your career. What do you think would have been valuable to go to or to have that support system? And did you recognize it at the time or is it only now looking at it kind of from hindsight?
0: You know, I didn't recognize it at the time. I think there was a function of me sort of living in Boston, being in the tech industry, where I was around more male employees and the industry was very male dominant at the time. And I didn't know at that point in time or necessarily sort of crave female mentorship, but I definitely reached out to people I worked with. You know, my brothers have been my mentors most of my life. And I think it was as I went to business school and sort of looked at how I might want to pivot my career, And then as I became older and sort of more professional and the years progressed, I think that's when I started to realize kind of the benefit and some of the advice that I maybe was missing. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've talked about before is This concept, I totally believe in this concept of having your own personal advisors, like your own board of advisors that might be professional. It might also be personal. Who's the group of people that you can trust? People who are sort of your peers or where you're at in life, but also people who are further along and can give you advice on the things to look for, things to pay attention, how to progress your career. And then eventually that turns into how do you start to give back and have a group in your board of advisors with people that you're mentoring and are
1: teaching you about the next generation? How do you recommend that someone actually find that support system or that network? And I think this is sometimes the part where people get stuck, especially, well, I would say two cases. The first is when they're starting out. And then the second is when you're more senior, you still want that. And it's just as necessary, but sometimes it feels a little bit like, is it too late to find some sort of type advisor relationship that you're missing? Are there some practical or, or kind of tactical takeaways you have for people?
0: I think as you are building your career, the one place to look at is where you work. I mean, I remember when I worked at Target, there was a really sort of strong focus on meeting people in different verticals, at different levels, having coffee meetings. And so I think... The first place sometimes is the easiest place to start. Maybe it's not somebody you're working directly for. Maybe not somebody in your team, but another team. And I think once you start having those conversations and sort of going you know, out of your immediate work circle, you start to meet more people. You can ask for recommendations. I think even friends are a great resource. I mean, we talk to our friends about everything. Career should be, you know, is one of the things I, I think we can also do the same. Like, who do you work with? What are the industries that you work in? and also leading to introduction. So I think you are right. There are definitely, as you get more professional and more senior, there are definitely moments when you maybe aren't prioritizing that in the same way, or you are leading teams or leading business areas, so maybe not making the same amount of time. And I've discovered, especially post-COVID, there's a lot of networking groups out there that really sort of foster bringing people together, whether that's Chief, whether that's the WeSuite. There's, a, there's many other networking opportunities. And I think what world post-pandemic has done is it's given everybody the ability to find time to connect, even if it's just through a video call in remotely. So I think it's actually given more access. I think that's been really helpful. I have multiple points made pivots in my career and I really relied on networking and meeting people and learning about their industry. And I've used LinkedIn pretty frequently. You know, I reached out to people, told them who I am. It doesn't always work, but sometimes when it does, that one will count for the few times that you've reached out. And that has been really, really helpful for my
1: pivots. So I highly recommend that. So let's talk about some of your notable pivots. So you were working at Vestier Collective. And then you left to be the CMO for Threads Styling. And now you're back. I'm back. <laughs> Which is, it's rare, albeit obviously back in a different capacity. I love that story. I think, you know, as, as being a founder and an executive, I love it when I hear people coming back in, in different points of their journey. Why did you leave and how did you approach returning? So I joined in 2014 and I joined
0: when they were mainly in Europe and I helped launch the U.S. market and I moved along in 2017 after we had sort of reached these growth milestones and we had a team and operations in place. And at the time I left because at that time, Vestiaire, once they launched in the U.S., were continuing to look at global expansion. And so they were very much looking at how to expand further in Europe and Asia. And so I had moved on at that point. But I kept tabs. I've been in the resale industry for a while now. And the reason I initially joined them is I felt really strongly about the brand. They were one of the first peer-to-peer platforms that actually authenticated product after it's sold. And just to give context, you know, the platform really connects buyers and sellers from around the world. And so you have this access to amazing fashion product from closets around the world. So you're literally shopping the world's best closets. As the years passed, a few things happened. One is the market consolidated. Second is the resale industry just continued to grow. I mean, I believe it's since just 2020, it's tripled. You mentioned some of the numbers early on and the adoption of resale and secondhand has just sort of moved to the next level. And so when I got back in touch with Vestiaire, when, you know, when we spoke, it was clear to me that there was so much opportunity still in the US. And I was really excited by that next phase of growth. And I thought, you know, when do you really get a chance to sort of come back and take what you built to the next level? And so that's what really motivated me to come back.
1: You said your approach to your job as CEO is is being a, quote, creative problem solver. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, I think that as a ceo you're a general manager and so the idea of sort of being a general manager is that you are overseeing a number of different topics and at any given moment you're dipping in and out of different topics both current and also planning and i think oftentimes many topics come up many challenges come up many growth opportunities come up and As a leader, it's really your role to look at, okay, how do we take advantage of this? How do we react to the environment? What do we do next? And it's not always such a clear answer. And I think creative problem solver to me means, okay, how do we move forward? What is the best way to move forward? If it's not the obvious path, if we don't have the time, what's another way that we can look at this problem and move us forward? Whether it's through business, through marketing, through how we're handling promotion strategy, And I think that when you go into these industries and when you're in an environment that's always changing... You sort of need to do that even more. So, technology industry is constantly changing. Like the larger macroeconomic environment right now is, you know, is fluctuating. I was in the tech industry during the internet bubble craziness. There was a whole lot of change there. I was in retail during the housing crisis. There was a lot of change there. So it really kind of conveys the fact that yes, there is a straightforward path, but. Many times you may not be able to take the straightforward path or find like the right solutions. So, how do you move around and figure out how to keep all the trains running forward?
1: It's one thing for you as a CEO to have that mindset. And I think on every job description, it says like, you know, bring your problem solving hat or, you know, want people who bring solutions. I certainly talk about that a lot. What are some of the ways you've been able to? translate the skill set that you have to the culture of the company that you're running? That's a good question.
0: I believe that a lot of that comes through with how you sort of work and communicate with your teams. I think it's very easy to go down this track that you're busy working, you're busy doing your next task, you're filling out kind of the next thing to do, Without always looking up and seeing sort of where are you going. And, you know, it's as a leader, I think that's something I still am looking at like how to make sure you have the right balance of sort of giving the vision to your team. Where are we going? Where do we want to go? And then where are we now? And how do we, you know, pass through those obstacles? How do we make sure that we're going in the right direction? And how do you have those checkpoints to make people feel like there's progress being made? And I think that. Map is what teams need. That's what I needed when I was in the team. And so the right way of communicating, pulling people together, making sure that, you know, we are taking a step back at the right moments. The vision is clear. I think that's something that all leaders, it's really important to do with teams. And it's something that is almost needed to keep everybody on that same
1: journey. I need to get some details on the personal whiteboard sessions that you do. (laughs) Tell us all about it.
0: Yes. So, I mentioned I've done a few pivots in my career and I've actually taken a break from working and taken the time to sort of network and think, okay, what do I want to do next? And I've done quite a few personal whiteboard sessions where sometimes I'm not sure what I want to do next. And it's a matter of like, what do I want? What do I like? What are the things about jobs that I've loved? What do I want to make sure I do in the next world? And then it's about sort of crafting what that vision would look like, what I want to do next professionally or personally, and then almost detailing it out. So I'm a big believer that if you write down your vision and you sort of have a vision that you're focused on and you start talking about it, you write it down, you ask people's advice that you find a way for the universe to open doors that make it happen. I I do it often. I've done it almost every year for myself. I even roped my husband into it, just in terms of like where we want to be in five years. And I really think that it, it gets you thinking about the direction you want to go in, and it starts giving you some perspective as to how to get there. I firmly believe talking about it also helps you get there closer. And I still, even in my meetings today and with my team right now, I very
1: often try to get the conference room with the whiteboard so I can write on it. Do you erase it after like your personal whiteboard session? I asked this as a, a fellow manifester who like when I'm done, I'm like, what do I do with this? I give it to the universe and then.
0: So I have, but in my last one, I got the post-it notes and I decided to keep it, fold it, put it away, check in on it maybe in a year or two. So I totally know what you mean. I think erasing it doesn't do anything as long as you remember and you keep it top of mind.
1: But I also think there's something fun about keeping it and revisiting it later. I wanna talk about resale. As you talked about, it's growing really fast. Why do you think that is? I love you guys, I love some of the other sites, I'm I'm a big into resale. And it's just such a difference in consumer behavior even over the past like 10 years what do you think that is attributed to
0: well there's no longer a stigma around resale and you know one of the things that i can share to answer that question we've these last few years sort of interviewed our customers to say you know what is it that makes you come to vestiaire and buy luxury or designer or resale and we've seen a shift happen in the last few years and originally The premise for resale was around affordability and accessibility, so accessibility to brands that maybe you can't buy full price. But what's happened in the last few years is selection has become a reason that's risen closer to the top. The idea of having more options, the ability to sort of browse past season, current season, and also browse vintage. So I think selection is one thing. Another one that people have started talking about, but I would say is not quite the driving force, is people are starting to be much more aware of the environmental impact and how resale and fashion circularity can be one of the ways to solve it. It's not a driving force yet. I think that's more of a secondary consideration. But I think there's something about the whole idea of selection that is making people come. And I think also when you look at some of the trends that are coming out, you know, much more apt to wear vintage. I think we've started to move towards a world where buying timeless, and it's no longer sort of trend-based. And I think resale definitely helps sort of track all of those reasons. So if you have all of them combined, resale is a natural place to go to next.
1: So we're going to get to an audience question, but before we do that, I want to know, when was the last time you negotiated for yourself?
0: Well, I I negotiated on vestiaire for the jacket that I bought. I made an offer. That would be from a fashion point of view. From a personal point of view, I negotiated when I decided to come back
1: to vestiaire. So earlier this year, I joined in February. So that goes to the question our newsletter readers want to know. Mm -hmm. How do you actually start the conversation with your company that you should be compensated more? And how do you negotiate that? any tips? So the
0: way that I've approached negotiation, sometimes it's been salary, sometimes it's been about moving into a team that I'm really interested in or taking on a new project. I've approached it more in the direction of sharing, this is where I want to be and where I'd like to be. And this is where I am now. And if you can help me understand, or if you can share with me How do I go from where I am now to where I am there? Because then, you know, it's no longer about asking for something that you are necessarily entitled to, but it's about getting a little bit more information about why you aren't where you want to be with salary and what would it take. And if you can walk out of that conversation with some actionable next steps, then you have a plan, right? And I think it also forces a person on the other side of the table to really sort of think about what is my answer going to be to this ask, to this negotiation? And I think sometimes if we can approach it that way, there's a little bit more of a path forward. And it's harder to say no, right? Because it's more about, okay, well, if I can't be there now, what do I do to get there next? I do think that's one. The second is to just ask. I mean, I think we sometimes underestimate the importance of just raising the question. Like, I would like to do this. I would like to be in this team. I would like to do this project. I think sometimes we are either afraid to ask or we assume it's known, but I think the ability to just come out and ask is something don't underestimate because it opens up the conversation.
1: Final question. Who's someone else we should have on the show? Ooh, good question.
0: There's a lot of people.
1: Two that come to mind,
0: one is one of my board of advisors, Maria Mullins. She had come in to become CEO of Thinx a few years, well, many years back, and she saw the company through growth and the sale of Kimberly-Clark. I think she just has a really interesting perspective of coming in as an operating CEO and then in a space, period underwear, which at the time uh, did not exist. I think that would be one. The second one that comes to mind is somebody I've met recently, Felita Harris. She has an amazing career in fashion. She's consulting, but one of her big projects right now is Raise Fashion, which is she's pulled together this industry of professionals from fashion to help Black-owned brands and Black designers and really help give them access and advice and consulting. And I'm one of their new advisors. So I think that she would be really great to talk to as
1: well. Samia, we will follow up with you on those intros. We'd love to get them both on the show. Congratulations on the new role. I'm very excited to shop many things from you. And thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Danielle. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise.